Our scripture reading this morning comes from Daniel chapter uh, 2, various verses. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. The The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floor. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to David, Daniel, and commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. This is God's word. Well, thank you, and uh, thank you, congregation, for your grace and encouragement and investment in me uh, throughout the last, I guess, at least eight or nine months, uh, but especially these last few weeks. And so I'm thankful to... uh, for us to dig into God's word together again this morning. When I drive somewhere in the mornings, uh, right when I get out of my truck, my sunglasses immediately fog up. You guys experience that? Uh, Due to the humidity and where we live, it drives me crazy. I have to take them off, wipe them off. Uh, But like that, uh, the chaos and disorder of our day, along with the present difficulties in our lives, often fog up our vision for and hope in the kingdom of God and in God's promises and It quickly leads us to panic and restlessness and dejection. And so this passage today speaks to us who who get lost in the details and forget the big picture. And you can see that I I entitled the message, The Big Picture. A word on interpreting this type of literature. Um, In Daniel 2, uh, what we're looking at today is a foretaste of the second half of the book, chapters 7 through 12, which is full of prophecies about the future. And in apocalyptic literature that's a genre uh, mainly with uh, that's very symbolic usually uh, casting visions seeing visions of the end of time and uh, and in some prophetic literature one of the greatest temptations and dangers is to get bogged down in the details to take every symbol and number and to attach it to something in our current day that's the temptation it's also dangerous people are obsessed with this approach and it's led to many wrong interpretations of the bible And I would say that it has and still often does make the church look silly when we interpret something, when we force something, attach it to something in our day, loudly proclaim what it means, 
and especially dates, and then the interpretation doesn't come true. And oftentimes that approach frequently, it misses the main point of a text. And in our passage today, God is showing us the big picture. It has one main point. The kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is going to do. And so we won't force to interpret what's not meant to be interpreted. If you notice, Daniel interprets the dream for us. Thank you, Daniel. We don't have to do that, right? So we won't force that. We're going to see what Daniel has to say about this and then view this uh, vision, this dream, uh, in light of the whole canon, in light of the whole Bible, and see what the rest of the Bible, how it sheds light on this passage. Now, as for some background, what purpose is this passage meant to serve? Remember, where we're at in our story of the Old Testament is that God's people have been taken into exile by a pagan nation called Babylon. And many of them are being oppressed, and they've given up on the fact that that God has a plan. And that his promises are really going to come true and that he will win. Because by the way things look, by present appearances, it looks like their God has been defeated. And the pagan kingdoms of the world have won. And so to press back against that feeling, that dejection, the book of Daniel was written to encourage and comfort God's people in exile to show them the big picture. The entire book of Daniel is driving home one main point, that God is sovereign. That he overrules everything and eventually he will overcome all human evil. And in spite of present difficulties and appearances, this God, their God, is in control. That's good news. We can stop there, say amen, Jesus rules, he reigns, let's go home. I'll give you more. The book of Revelation is a lot like this. It's heavily influenced by the book of Daniel. Uh, If you've read it before, what does it call the world? calls the world Babylon, right? The nation of Babylon didn't even exist when John wrote Revelation. He was pointing back to the exile as an illustration of what the church was going through during his present time to bring them comfort and assurance. He was showing them, again, the big picture. So, this is so important as we begin. God, through Daniel, is telling his people, your deliverance is in the future. It may be distant, but it is sure. It's not a maybe, it's not up in the air, we'll see what happens. Hey, I'll let you know as things move along, I'll get back to you. We'll we'll figure it out as we move along. No, it's coming, and it's greater than you can ever dream, than you can imagine your deliverance is coming. So don't lose hope, and don't be deceived by how things look. That's what God is telling his people. This past week in our community Bible reading, I would encourage you to try to follow along as we read together We read in 1 Corinthians 10 that things happened in the past as an example to us, and they were written down for our instruction. And so that means that this, especially this passage, is written for us today. That's the beauty of God's Word being living and active. This is written for us because the Bible tells us that we, as Christians, are in exile from our heavenly home, and we too lose hope due to present circumstances and appearances. And so here, God is letting us in on what is happening. He is giving us a preview of what's to come, and we need that hope to remind us that he's in control. And so if you see in your worship folder, there's an outline. We're going to walk through this in three points. The dream and the interpretation, really the problem. Uh, the stone, which is the, the deliverance. And finally, the great mountain, the hope. 
And so first, the dream and the interpretation. If you have your Bibles open to Daniel 2, there's one around you. You might want to open it. I couldn't read the entire narrative. It's really long, so I cut it down. So I want to catch us up on what exactly is going on here, okay? Uh, The king of Babylon is a prideful man named Nebuchadnezzar. And so in the beginning of this chapter, he has a dream that shows him that there's some things he can't control, and that scares the daylights out of him because he's the most powerful man in all the world. It scares him, and it troubles his spirit, and it wakes him up, and he can't even sleep. And so he demands that all of the wise men and everyone come in, and he demands them to do two things. One, tell me what I dreamed. Secondly, tell me what the dream means. No hints, no lifelines, no phone calls. Tell me what I dreamed and what it means. And if you can't do it, I'm going to kill all of you. Bad deal. They can't do it. And so he says, kill them all. Now Daniel uh, is a Jewish exile. He's been given a position of leadership in Babylon along with his three friends. And he hears about this. And so he runs home to his three friends and he says, hey guys, we need to pray, seek God to reveal this mystery. God does. And if you see in verses 20 through 23, Daniel praises God for revealing to him the meaning of this dream. He quickly runs to the captain of Nebuchadnezzar's guard, uh, named Arioch, he runs to this guy and he says, hold it. Don't kill everybody. I got this. I think I got this. Let me talk to the king. And he goes in and he declares that the God of heaven has revealed this mystery. And he proceeds to interpret the dream. And that's where we picked up in reading uh, our passage today. And so here's what he tells the king. He says, uh, you dreamed of a great image made of four different materials that represent four different kingdoms. As mentioned, the temptation at this point is to assign a nation of the past, the present, or the future to each one of these parts of the image. And many have. Many have said Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and there's a couple different interpretations. And while many spend, again, hours attempting to identify what those empires were and arguing over them, you can miss the main point of the text. Daniel interprets one of those kingdoms for us. The gold head. He hardly gives any time to the second and third kingdom. He's like, yeah, there's going to be a second one, there's going to be a third one. Okay, let's go to the fourth one, and then let's really talk about this last one. That's kind of how he does it. He says, the gold head, in verse 38, he tells King Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And this guy's like, yeah, that's, that's what I'm talking about. In verse 37 and 38, he really buttered this King Nebuchadnezzar up. He's like, you rule over everything, king. You're the man. But there's going to be a lot of the mans after you. There's going to be another the man rise up. An inferior kingdom will take you over. And then another one's going to come and take them over. And then another one's going to come and take them over. These kingdoms represent the powerful and prideful kingdoms of the world that rage and set themselves against God. Psalm 2 tells us that. They set themselves against the Lord and his anointed one. And here, in this dream, we see them ruling and conquering. And this is what discourages God's people who are in exile. They they had experienced this. They had just been conquered. That's why they're discouraged. Daniel 7, many say, is is a parallel dream to this one, where uh, he dreams of, of four different beasts that come out of the sea. And they represent four different nations that are eventually judged by God. And it's these rebellious things of the world and their apparent triumphs over the godly to lead us, that lead us to believe and act as if our God has lost. Remember, the exiles, they're slaves. Things were not getting any better for them. They're thinking, 
God's promises have failed. I mean, we're never going back home. The northern kingdom, Israel, has been conquered. They're done by Assyria. Now we've been conquered in the south. I mean, this pagan king of Babylon even went and took the vessels out of the temple of our God, destroyed the temple. They took the vessels before our God and put them in his pagan God's temple. That's a statement move. He's saying our God, he's saying he's defeated our God. And maybe he has. That's how they feel. They can't see past what's right in front of them. And so I ask you, can you relate to that feeling at all? I mean, do you ever let what you see happening in the world and what you're experiencing in your present difficulties and in the circumstances of your life tell the whole story? I lose sight of the big picture all the time. I begin, you know, I can think, yep, we have reached absolutely rock bottom at this point. We are not coming back from this. Usually after, like, the Super Bowl halftime show, I feel that way. Just, this is, this is the bottom of the barrel. There's no coming back. But in reality, I can tend to panic when, when, I, when I see all these big things. I can panic and then get anxious, and then I strive to change the things, and then I realize these things are way too big for me to change. And so that leads me to get hopeless, and I can get cynical and then apathetic, and then I can get this, like, it is what it is attitude. And I think we all find ourselves in that place and we all express it a little differently. And our problem, if you're a Christian, uh, the reason we find ourselves there is that we have spiritual amnesia. We forget daily that our God reigns because of present appearances and life circumstances and difficulties that cloud out our vision of hope and in God's promises. And for me, What leads to that, what causes that in me, is the world out there and the world in here. The world outside, first of all, Drew uh, referenced it in his prayers. Just turn on the news and you'll see it. Whether it's the never-ending conflict in the Middle East or troubles in Asia or this rebel group taking over Iraq, the persecution uh, of Christians all over the world, Uh, The pushback against anything Christian, even remotely Christian in our society, the apparent decay of morality in our day, although I would probably argue that it's always been that way. And social issues like abortion and the attempted redefinition of marriage, the way things seem to be moving as a whole, they all add up and I start feeling like the exiles without hope. The world out there makes me lose sight of the big picture of God's kingdom and his promises, and not only the world out there, but also the world in here, in two ways. My life circumstances, and then in me. My life circumstances, and and you can relate to these, whether it be job stress, family health issues, or your kids have just been really bad that week, or you argued with your spouse a lot that week, a tough financial month, your children need some type of health uh, decisions made, and then you got to make health insurance decisions, and that can really discourage you. And your minivan breaks down, and then you remember you have a minivan, and that discourages you. I mean, all these things add up. And then a rock flew up, and it cracked my windshield. I'm not kidding. It doesn't take much. I'm like, woe is me. I am lost. I am undone. I'm done. Sometimes it doesn't take much for our daily life circumstances to contribute to us losing hope inside of the big picture, and not only inside my life circumstances, but also inside of me personally. My sin, my lack of progress spiritually, struggling with the same sins that hound me, 
my lack of ability to carry out what I desire to do. The world outside of me, the kingdoms of this world and their apparent triumphs, specifically over the godly. Uh, the, The everyday struggles of personal life and the invisible war that rages on inside of me, the sin in my life, they all add up and I lose hope. And I I do feel like, I realize I'm in exile and I say, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? You ever said that? Maybe not in those words, but just that cry. We're just like the exiles. Our big picture gets fogged up by all of these things. But thankfully, uh, the interpretation of the dream goes on, and we find that we're not without hope. Daniel shows the exiles that their immediate circumstances don't tell the whole story, and that's good news. That the way things look aren't the way things really are or, or the way they will be. And in spite of them, God's on his throne and in control. And that message, that's the same message to us today. So we look at this stone. In verse 34, if you look in verse 34, Daniel says, next in the dream, that a stone was cut out by no human hand. And it struck the image, it broke the image into pieces, and it crumbled and almost disintegrated into like chaff, right? Like corn husks or uh, wheat um, that's left over, and the wind just blew it all away. That's what this stone did. And so, quickly, what do we know about this stone from the passage? And I just want to mention four things. First of all, it's made without human hands, which means its origin is divine, which tells us that this image, this statue of the kingdoms, is a human product, but the stone is supernatural. It's of God himself. Secondly, we see that it crushes all the kingdoms. In verse 35, it says that it crushes them so much, there's not a trace of them left. I love that. There's no sign that they were even there. Complete destruction. Thirdly, it's the least valuable substance listed. It's not gold, it's not silver, it's not bronze, it's not iron, it's a rock. This shows us that God works differently than what the world thinks he does. Works differently than the world does. It shows us how God works. And finally, we see that after it crushes the image, it grows into a great mountain. It fills the whole earth. In verse 44, it says, it will never be destroyed, and it will stand forever. So the begging question is, who or what is this stone? And I think, when we look in light of what the Bible tells us, the story of the Bible, I think it's a who and a what. We read in our assurance of pardon, and I intentionally strung those passages together Uh, It reveals who the stone is, right? In Acts, the Bible tells us that Jesus, God's son, is the stone made without human hands. John 1.1 says Jesus was never created. He was in the beginning with God. He's the uncreated one. And we find out two things about Jesus as the stone. And I think we see one positively and one negative. Positively, he's the cornerstone of a great temple that God is building, that his people are being built upon. So some stand on Jesus as their rock, and they are never moved. Psalm 118, 1 Peter 2 tells us this. In short, he's Savior for some. At the same time, we see that the rock serves another purpose. This stone serves the purpose of crushing all who oppose him. Every person or kingdom that stands in his way or stands against him will not stand. Psalm 1 says the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They will be like what? The chaff that the wind drives away. The same exact language used in Daniel 2. In short, Jesus is also judge. 
He's Savior and Judge, the same stone. The bad news is, the Bible tells us the second option is what we all deserve. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. And because of that, we deserve punishment. We deserve God's justice. We deserve to be crushed. We are in the path of the stone. It's not just the world out there, but it's us. It's each of us, too, who are guilty, who deserve judgment. But this is the beautiful story of the Bible. This is why we come here every week. Of the goodness and wisdom and grace and love of this ever-pursuing God, the beautiful good news is that he's made a way for us to stand on the stone and live rather than be crushed by it. And the question, of course, is how. And that's this word we throw around, gospel. And that simply means good news. And the good news is that Jesus himself was crushed for rebels. That he came here and he lived a perfect life and he took the rebels' sin and shame on a cross. He took God's wrath. And if you put your faith in him, God lifts you from the path of the stone's destruction and puts you on top of the stone where you stand on it. This is for anyone who puts their faith in Jesus, and it's for the ones who know they deserve the stone's wrath. They deserve to be crushed. It's for the needy, the broken, the ones who are tired and weary and know they've messed it up, and they can't do it right. If you feel that, turn from your sin, repent, and believe in the gospel, and you will enter into God's kingdom, the kingdom of God right now. It's as close to you as your mouth is from a confession of faith. That's how close you are. But also in his work of of all of this, of living a perfect life, of dying on the cross, of being raised from the dead, the Bible also tells us he was fighting a cosmic battle. That he was uh, fighting the true evil powers that exist between the visible evil powers that we see in this world. And it says that he was disarming them and he was destroying their works. And that he was overcoming their greatest weapon, the power of sin and death. He has stripped them down. That's what Jesus did in his work. That has happened. And he's going to bring it to completion. And if your faith is in Jesus, you now have access into what's called the kingdom of God that we read about. You're no longer a slave and dominated as a slave of this world. But you are now a citizen of the kingdom of God. And Jesus, as the king of this kingdom, he came and opened the door to that kingdom on earth when he first came. And his kingdom remains even now. It is among us. Or is it? Right? I mean, after Daniel did this interpretation, he's still in exile. The temple's still in ruins. Things are still a mess. We know that injustice and oppression still remain now. We know that Christians are being persecuted and killed right now. So we see that other ungodly kingdoms remain on earth along with the kingdom of God at the same time. And so we have to learn what's the nature of the kingdom of God? What's it like? How does it develop in order to live wisely in this time? And so we'll see that here in the Great Mountain, the hope. In verse 35, Daniel says that after the stone struck the image, it became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. And in verse 44, we're told that this is the kingdom of God, and it will stand forever. 
And we also learn that in the gospel, Jesus provided a new accessibility to this kingdom on earth, but that this kingdom of God is not complete yet. It's in the process of growing. We read in, in, in our, our call to worship about the nature of this kingdom. I cut a tree down in the backyard a few weeks ago. Uh, I left it as a stump. Uh, and with all this rain, I came outside, not just a few weeks later, and I said, when did that happen? Like, it's already grown up quite a bit again. I have not witnessed it growing. I don't even know if you can sit and watch a tree grow. As far as I know, I've never seen that happen. You can't physically watch it start growing. But you see evidence of it, right? It's silent. It's slow. But it's definitely growing. You go out and you see the evidence of it. And again, our call to worship said, this is what the kingdom of God's like. It's a process. It starts small, but it's growing to be huge. And it happens quietly, but it happens steadily. But of course, with all of the bad things we've talked about, the question is, is it really growing? Well, let's look back. You remember in Acts how the church started. After Jesus ascended into heaven, there were about 120 people in an upper room. And over 2,000 years later, we're thousands of miles away, speaking a different language in a completely different culture, and we're worshiping the same Jesus, and millions of people are worshiping this same Jesus this morning. It's growing. You don't hear about it on the news. You don't read about it. But that's the nature of it. The Bible says that's the nature of it. Is it really growing? We have a family in our church who's selling everything and moving a thousand miles away to Central America to be missionaries for the sake of the kingdom of God. Luke 18, 29. God's moving. It's growing. We're starting a new mercy ministry in our city to go out in the darkness and bring light to God's kingdom there in the name of Jesus. It's growing. The mountain's growing. We're going to plant a church in another part of the city for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's growing. Get in on that. Come talk to me after service and get in on that. You know I couldn't pass that up. Did you know that you wouldn't even be sitting here if the kingdom of God wasn't growing? Christian, you weren't born a Christian. You're evidence that the kingdom of God is growing. Don't be deceived by what you see. The gospel is bearing fruit and it's growing all over the world. God's kingdom will cover every square inch of this world. It's already his. Think of the, most, the darkest, most godless place on earth. And Christian, think of the most rebellious part of your heart that you seem to can't make it lay down its arms. It will be brought under the feet of Jesus and he will reign there and his peace will rule there. An old hymn says, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does its successive journeys run. He will reign there. And nothing can halt its advancement. Not even our failures, because it's a work of grace. It's God's project. It's not a work of human hands. We don't create the kingdom of God. We can't hinder the kingdom of God, but we can get in on it. We can walk in it and be a part of it. And anything that tries to stand in its way will be smashed and become part of the kingdom of God. And that kingdom will last forever and it will never be shaken. It can't be shaken. And if you're in Jesus, you've already entered into it. So, what does all this mean for us now? And this is where I really believe we see how much right theology matters. 
Many say, ah, we don't need theology. That's messing with what really matters. Just live in love. But no, I mean, what we believe informs the way we act. Theology informs our practice. That's true for everyone. No one is exempt from that. And so a misunderstanding about the nature of the kingdom of God will have great consequences for our lives now because trials and difficulties will remain and they will remain until Jesus returns and he completes setting up his kingdom. My wife is due in October uh, with our third boy. So that's a praise and a prayer request right there. Okay, in one. Pray for us. His name is Brooks, and he's, he's here. Right? He's right inside of her. But he's not here completely. He's here already, but, he, but not yet. We see evidence of him. He's kicking, and he's growing. I got down the other night, and I was talking to him, like, on the other side of her belly, obviously, and he literally kicked me in the face. I am not kidding. He kicked me in the face. I was like, you got one coming when you get out, right? He's here, but he's still yet to come fully. The kingdom of God's like that. Romans 8 says the entire world is groaning for it to be revealed in its fullness. It can't wait. So the Bible tells us that the kingdom of God has come and it will come. And that's what is commonly known as we live in the time of the already and the not yet of God's kingdom. And if we understand this correctly, we'll live wisely in tension, as Drew mentioned, with hope and humility. Both of those things. So just a few things on each of those. First, we'll live with hope if we understand God's kingdom correctly. That the kingdom is already here. And that'll mean three things for us. First of all, we won't be easily discouraged by present difficulties or our immediate circumstances. We will hope because we know the things in front of our eyes do not tell the whole story. Secondly, we won't become cynical. We won't say, ah, it is what it is. God's promises have failed. I knew, it's always too good to be true. I knew this would happen. Getting that attitude. We'll be optimistic because Jesus reigns. He is making all things new right now. And his kingdom is growing and we're part of it. So we won't be cynical when bad things happen. And finally, we won't panic when we think things are falling apart. We won't run to people and say, the world is ending tomorrow. So-and-so's been elected. It's over. We won't do that. Instead, we'll stay steadfast and confident, unshakable in our God because he's in control. And his kingdom is growing already. And then also, in tension with that hope, we'll live with, with humility. Because his kingdom's not yet completely here. And that'll mean three things. First, we won't be triumphalists. We'll realize that the kingdom's not completely here, and we ourselves are not complete. (laughs) So we won't be self-righteous, but we'll be humble, realizing that we are a work in progress of God's grace alone. Secondly, we won't be naive when bad things happen. They won't catch us off guard. We won't be surprised because we live in a fallen world. These other ungodly kingdoms exist now, though their days are numbered. But we'll realize that those things do happen because this kingdom is yet to come in its fullness. And finally, we won't be lazy and passive because this kingdom's not fully here yet. We will go and risk and live with God's spirit in us because we have a role to play in sowing the kingdom of God as he gives the growth, right? I mean, Marissa does her job with the pregnancy. She gets as much rest as she can. She's taking her vitamins. She's, she's trying to eat the right foods. But God is the one who made my son, and God is the one who's growing my son. 
Marissa waters, God gives the growth. It's the same with God's kingdom. We have a job to do. Jesus' invisible kingdom already exists. Our goal is to go out and bring that to light. That's our mission here at this church. He reigns. His kingdom's here, but not yet completely. So we who walk in it already go in the darkness and bring it to light. And so if we live like this, we'll live wisely in the age of the already and the not yet of the kingdom of God. In John chapter 20, after Jesus has been crucified, uh, Mary Magdalene goes out to the tomb. And his body isn't there. And she's weeping. And she says, somebody's taken his body. It's over. And someone walks up. She doesn't recognize him. She thinks it's a gardener. And he says her name. He says, Mary. I like to think he whispered it. I don't know. But when he did, her eyes opened. And she saw that it was Jesus. Present appearances did not tell the whole story. Her eyes were open to the big picture that he is risen. And he is ruling. And he is reigning. And so, I just pray that you hear him call your name today if you are downcast in the mire of what things look like. He will lift your eyes and your heart up to him. And remember, the things that discourage you and the things, the evil that looks like it's triumphing over, um, over the godly, they have feet of clay and the rock of ages will smash them. Look to Jesus. That's the guarantee. This table is the guarantee. By the end of this scene, the king The most powerful man in the world was sprawled out on the floor before a young Jewish exile. What a foreshadowing that every king, every the man, will bow his knee before King Jesus and every tongue confess that he is Lord and he is God. We're the people of the stone that was cut without hands and we're seeking a kingdom made without human hands. It's growing, it's coming. Live with hope and humility, steadfastness. It is sure. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you that nothing can overcome your grace. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And even as these evil kingdoms press against you, they rage and set themselves against you. What's amazing in Psalm 2 is it says you laugh because you are that in control and you are taking the good and bad and you are weaving it all together to bring about your perfect purposes. And that is guaranteed by the blood of Jesus. Father, give us hope. Meet us where we're at this morning. Lift up our eyes where our help comes from to where our help comes from. The Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, Jesus our Savior. God, be glorified. We pray that your kingdom would come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, in our lives, in our hearts, in our homes, in our city, and in this world for your glory until you come again. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, three verses in Psalm 118 really tell the story of what we talked about today. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That's Jesus. If your faith is in Jesus, you can say with the psalmist, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And because of that, whatever present appearances or difficulties or struggles you go into, you can also say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it.
because his kingdom has come, it is growing, and it will come. Rest assured. And this is that assurance. So receive this benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in the peace of Jesus Christ. Amen.